At 2-5 after the third consecutive primetime loss, the Seahawks are officially a playoff long shot. Former offensive lineman Matt Nichols joins us to zoom in on the X's and O's of how we got here and what can be done to correct it. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with producer Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? You know, I'm doing, Jackson. That's really uh, the baseline of what I'm able to give you right now. (laughs) I think that's all that can be asked of Seahawks fans these days. It's another week, another close loss for Seattle. This time, they fell 13-10 to to the Saints, and honestly, what was one of the least inspiring games of the Pete Carroll era that I can remember. And look, I get that you're not necessarily supposed to win with your backup quarterback, and that in a vacuum, you could take some solace and close losses while the starter is out. And if you didn't watch the game on Monday, maybe you look at New Orleans winning on a late field goal, or the fact that Jason Myers missed a couple of kicks and say, that's actually not that bad, all things considered. But I think when you actually consider all things, it was pretty ugly. And... We're going to get into the specifics of that here in a bit, but the thing that's brightened my mood substantially is the opportunity to speak with today's guest. A few of you out there know that Cigar Thoughts was a podcast slash video cast a number of years ago, and those of you who do know exactly who I'm talking about. He was an all-conference center at Pacific Lutheran University and helped them win a national championship. He's also one of the best schematic minds I've ever encountered and was, without question, the most popular part of the old podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Allow me to introduce you to Matt Nichols. Matt, thanks for coming in. Jackson, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Mike. Uh, good to chat with both of you. Uh, you know, wondering what the hell you're thinking, Jackson, going from the two Dannys to Mina to Joe Fan to me. But, you know, let's do this. <laughs> We're going to show the people exactly why I did that. <laughs> let's do it, brother. So, Matt, just to uh, give those who aren't familiar with you yet uh, an idea, you had the opportunity to play college football. But the program you played for was unique in a lot of ways. Tell us about being a part of the PLU football dynasty. Yeah, when you say dynasty, it really was, Jackson. Um, So first off, my coach there, Frosty Westering, was a Hall of Fame football coach. Um, Was fortunate enough to go see his plaque back in Alabama at the college football, or excuse me, in Atlanta at the College Football Hall of Fame three weekends ago for the first time. So Um, cool. So unbelievable. Um, to see somebody that you played for, that you love dearly, to see their plaque there, and for others to be able to recognize the greatness that we saw on a daily basis was phenomenal. Um, you know, little track record about PLU and the football program there. Eight national championship games, four national champions uh, championships, uh, from NAIA to Division Three. But Frosty really was the leader of that ship in so many ways. When he retired from PLU, uh, he was in his late 70s, uh, had so many individual records that it was uh, too numerable to count. But he was in the top 10 of all-time victories of all levels of college football. The man was a PhD in sports psychology and honestly not a ton different philosophy-wise as far as elevating players, not intimidating them like Pete Carroll. And so what you get to see every day with the Seahawks was really what I got to live at PLU for a while. For those who uh, may not know, Pacific Lutheran University is is famous for some things outside, with their football program outside of their amazing on-field success. Uh, it's a program that's really built around servant leadership. And, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the hallmarks of that are 
seniors carrying freshman pads out to practice, um, you know, doing things in unison as a team, getting together for potlucks after the game, inviting members and families of the other team to talk about the game with you guys and, and celebrate the fact that you guys have gone to battle together. Is that is that all right? All of that's correct. Uh, one of the greatest things that we would do is, as you talked about, that servant leadership. You know, my senior year in high school, I refused to do some of the little things, whether it was taking the ball, ba- the bag of balls out to the field, whether it was setting up cones. My senior year in college, my mind had changed where it was a privilege that I got to do that. I got to serve the freshmen. I got to serve the underclassmen, uh, whether it was as a senior, you know, having somebody that you mentored that was a freshman that's just trying to figure out how to balance classes, how to balance football, and maybe throw a girlfriend in on the side, how to balance all of that. You know, it really was that servant leadership that was expected, slightly demanded out of us that changed from when you come in and you were a freshman, you thought you were the king of the world because everybody that comes into plays at college was all conference something. Everybody was the best on their high school team or second best. And you get to whatever level of college football are, and all of a sudden you get humbled immediately. (laughs) And then you have to take classes, and then you go to practice, and you're lining up as an 18-year-old against 22-year-olds. So you're a big boy, and they're grown-ass men. There's a difference. And so you know, really that leadership that Frosty exuded on all of us transmitted to make me a better husband now, a better father now a better financial advisor now, and I think a better friend because of it. Well, there's there's no question. I can certainly speak to the last part of that. You've uh, you've been an awesome person to have in my life, and, and again, really, really happy to have you on today to share your expertise and wisdom with us. Now, uh, aside from all of that amazing stuff that you were just talking about, you guys kick some serious ass on the field, and as I recall, you had quite a bit of freedom on offense and ran a really dynamic scheme. As the center, in a high-powered system like that, what were your responsibilities? Not just pre-snap, but between drives, between plays. How did you approach your position? Yeah, well, let's start actually even before that. Let's start in the week. The week leading up where it was film study. And we'd always get our game plans on Tuesday night. We'd have Tuesday night meetings that would start 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, and sometimes go to midnight. And that was just strictly installation of what we were going to run against a specific team what they like to do defensively, where they like to uh, stunt, what they look like on third down, what did they do specifically in a goal line situation? You know, did they blitz you after a turnover? When their offense turned the ball over, did their defensive coordinator be like, let's go after these guys right now? So we would install all of that on a Tuesday. Film study always started on Monday, so I would start to understand what was going on, what they like to do before install came. And then install really was, the icing on the cake. I know exactly what we're trying to do. And then Wednesday and Thursday was figuring out the minutia of how we're going to be really good. Because unfortunately with the Seahawks team, they're missing a little bit of the small things that are hurting them from being a decent team. Um, So then let's take it to the game. We get to the game, ball kicks off, offense gets it. As a center, my job immediately is to make sure I'm setting the huddle at the appropriate depth where it needs to be on the appropriate hash mark. Because oftentimes, and it was very true at PLU. Our play calls were very wordy. Um, I can give you a couple of those here in a second if you would like. But they were very, Definitely. very wordy. And with the play clock being as quick as it is, we needed to have enough time for the quarterback to come in, say the play, us break. And with college, again, remember, wide hash marks. So receivers going to the wide side of the field, 
have a 20 to 30 yard run to get over there before they're even set. So it's all about keeping pace. Then the play happens, it's good, it's bad, doesn't matter. We'd get back, I'd call the huddle again, and that's where we're starting to communicate with the other four offensive linemen, including the tight ends, including the running backs that might be staying in to block what went right, what went wrong, what do we need to adjust, what did they do on that play that we did see on film so we know we, can, we got their ass, or what did, we, what did they do that we didn't see, and that's a new wrinkle that their D coordinator threw in, and how the hell are we going to adjust on the fly? All of that has to happen really quick because the second the set or excuse me, the second the quarterback comes into the huddle, everybody shuts the fuck up because he's the only person that's allowed to talk. And then we break and go do it again. And that happens 60, 70 times a game. Okay. Give me one play call that you guys would run a go to and then tell me what your responsibilities on that play would be. Okay. Uh geez. Let's go spread and shoot right, motion left. 76 half back 76 half back option onto gun. So spread and shoot would mean two receivers on each side of the line of scrimmage, uh, just a running back in, in the backfield. Motion left. So we're taking the guy that's off of the line of scrimmage on the right hand side and we're motioning him over. So we have a three by one set now. 76 for us was shallow drag, clear out, and then deep drag or a deep in. The halfback choice or halfback X or halfback, whatever you wanted to do. That was just a route for the, for the uh, tailback out of the backfield. And then gun meant we were going shotgun with it. So I knew that I didn't have a center underneath my ass and I had to shotgun the ball back. What that also told me is we only got five for protection because now we got five guys out in a route. So we only have five in protection. We had a left-handed quarterback. My best friend, Isaac was my right tackle. So he had the blind side. Isaac was as solid as a damn rock over there. So I knew I didn't have to worry about him. My left guard, Trevor Roberts, was fucking amazing. All-American left guard. I didn't have to worry about him. So where does my attention need to go? Is it going to come on a blitzing linebacker? Are they going to run a nickel off of the corner? What is going to happen? Or can I just go help somebody double team with them? And then all of that would happen, you know, immediately every single play. So yeah, that's that that and that's I would say was probably an average word length for a play. That's awesome. Speaking Greek, brother. It's speaking Greek. <laughs> so I want to take that level of knowledge and ability to diagnose and turn it to a less high-powered offense, that of the Seattle Seahawks. This offense stunk this week. And I get that you got a backup quarterback, but they had 219 total yards in this game and got 84. On one play on the second drive. That means 125, is my math right? 135 total yards the rest of the way. How on earth does that happen, Matt? A couple of things. One, backup quarterback. Let's, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. Russell Wilson is one of the five best quarterbacks on the earth. We're lucky to have him. We have a mediocre backup, middle of the pack. Mike Robinson said he was the best backup. Um, absolutely not. I will also say he's not the worst. You know, we did have the Trayvon Boykin days here. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, middle of the pack, back of quarterback, our starting running back who is a stud is out. And we had to run against a very good running defense. It seemed to me we prepared as though the Monday night game was going to be like that Sunday night 49ers versus Colts game where we saw that deluge or that whatever the hell bomb they were calling, cyclonic bomb or whatever of rain. And we didn't adjust to that. If in a situation like what was happening down in San Francisco, 
it's really hard to throw the ball all over the field. We saw that there. The Seahawks, the rain that was there was coming down intermittently, but not horrible. I, I actually was texting one of my college uh, roommates who was also a football player at PLU about what the weather was like. He's like, you could throw perfectly fine in this weather. This is Northwest weather. It's not a big deal. The wind was swirling, no doubt about it. We saw that on the kicks. We saw it, you know, especially in the flags. But low, it wasn't swirling. So, you know, one of the issues was Gino, no, you know, no Carson, no tempo, trying to run it against a really good Saints defense and getting ourselves in second and 11s, second and nines, where with this team, with this quarterback at this time, we cannot be in those situations to have any chance for success. Yeah. Okay. That's, I get it. I get it. And I wasn't expecting 450 yards and, and 40 points or, or anything near that. But 10 points, three points in the last 55 minutes. That's got to be that's got to be more than just conditions and, and personnel. To me, it seemed like it was pure, unrelenting stubbornness and commitment to a an installation as you would as you were talking about that we're going to run the ball. Pete Carroll saying we're going to run the ball. We had some success for a quarter against Pittsburgh doing it. So it doesn't matter that the saints are the second best run defense in the NFL. It doesn't matter that after about 10 minutes into the game, they weren't worried about the pass at all. They continued to run the ball over and over again. And not even that dynamically. Uh, I think all game long, they had three runs of longer than six yards and one was a jet sweep to Freddie Swain. The other was a jet sweep to Gerald Everett. And the third was a draw play to Travis Homer on third and 19. So we saw really, really ineffective running, but they stuck with it. And, and the thing that is unforgivable to me that I'm searching, nay, I am begging you, Matt, to give me some reason not to be over the top frustrated with this. But like I mentioned, DK Metcalf caught the first pass of the game and took it 84 yards to the house. He didn't see another target for 43 minutes. And during that time, Alex Collins and Rashad Penny ran it 16 times for 31 yards. How does that happen without giving the best player on your offense a chance? Let's, let's just be honest. That should never happen. Like no. when, when you have a Ferrari, take him out and run him. Don't keep him in the uh, garage. And, and maybe DK and Ferrari are... Uh, a little more synonymous this week than uh, they were last week, but you know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, but let's like, we have a very, we have a once in a generation wide receiver that we did nothing to get him the ball, whether it was quick slants, whether it was drag routes, whether it was stops, whether it was comebacks, whether it was wide receiver screens. Sometimes you have to force the ball to your best player, regardless of if the saints are trying to stick them out. And when you talked about how the Saints were shutting down the run, it wasn't like they were just shutting it down, you know, with their front D line. Their linebackers were completely committed to shutting it down. If you watch Pete Warner or Demario Davis, they're literally running to the spot of where Alex Collins is going to be three steps after he gets the ball. Those are run fits. Those are run blitzes that they were doing. They timed it up almost perfectly every time. So what you have to do off of that is you have to run, you know, a backside counter on it where you start play side and then bend it backside. You have to run the play action passes off of that. You have to, you know, do the little things to allow your offense to be, you know, successful. And we 
did not make those adjustments until finally it was like 12 minutes in the fourth quarter. We finally got a decent drive and they did a lot of those things. And you're like, well, where the hell was that in the, you know, second half of the second quarter, third quarter? It, it was non-existent. And it was, it was very frustrating to watch live after going back and watching it a couple of times. I'm not as hot about it, but still it's frustrating as hell to see little things missed the same little things over and over and over again. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You've, you've mentioned a few times the small mistakes. And I know that, you know, you and I stay in touch kind of throughout the season because I, I always appreciate that you're watching a different game than I am, even though we're watching the same game. And and throughout the season, you've pointed out some of these mistakes, some of these not doing the small things the right way. And, and it felt like for a long time, Seattle – did all of they they were so assignment committed that they could be a little bit more straightforward with their approaches on offense and defense um now they they are certainly less talented and they look a lot less disciplined how has that manifested itself in ways that you've caught specifically in this last game well let's go back even a little bit further we used to have the amount of talent where we could lead the league in penalties and it didn't freaking matter because they were just that damn good like, we're not there. We don't have that level of talent to be able to do that. So our razor's edge between being really bad, mediocre, and good is, is, is the little, little, little details. You know, one of the things that I continued to notice was as we were running wide zone plays, that has everybody on the offensive line has to work in harmony with that. Unfortunately, we were not able to get to Demario Davis the entire time. Like, literally... None of the wide zones that I went back and watched, do we actually pin him in the way that that we can run play side? So not being able to do those little things over and over, that, uh, um, unfortunately, that, what was it, third and 11 where Gino gets sacked, takes, you know, Myers' field goal longer, two little things made a huge difference. Which way Travis Homer goes to block, which way Kyle Fuller's first, first step, like literally, his first step, that play was over. Little things like that continue to kill this team over and over. Then again, we get off of the field on a third and nine. Bobby makes a great sack, and unfortunately, Marquise Blair gets flagged for that unsportsmanlike contact with the, you know, with the forearm. This team in the past could do those things. This team now cannot. And, and one of the things we always talked about at PLU was the 60-30-10 rule. of the time when you lose, you beat yourself. 30% of the time, the other team is better than you. And 10% is just straight momentum on who wins. And this game was one of those 60% like nobody's business. And unfortunately, Pittsburgh was the same damn way where it was we're beating ourselves. They're not physically beating us. Do they have more talent? Does, Does the Saints defense have more talent than the Seahawks offense with Geno at quarterback? It's pretty close. Are they better if Russ is at quarterback? No. Russ is a freaking legendary quarterback that we all need to appreciate for however much longer we have him. Um, but we can't do the little things, whether it's a bad blocking assignment, a bad step, you know, on the coaches maintaining to run the same things over and over and over again. Yeah, and and it, I guess what I find myself wondering is where the accountability for the coaches – is because you know we know that the players answer to the coaches right the coaches have a set of expectations for the players and they can see both live and then back on film review 
to what degree they were able to deliver on those expectations. What I don't have a good sense for with this team, and maybe maybe none of us can peek behind the curtain this much, is what is the accountability for Ken Norton Jr.? And I'll just use an example that drives me crazy. For example, how many times have we seen him drop defensive linemen into the flats to try and cover uh, running backs and tight ends? I don't think it's ever worked. Um, or or for staying in a two-deep, soft-shell, eight-yard cushion coverage for two quarters at a time despite teams ripping off double-digit play drives consecutively. Uh, or Shane Waldron running his first scripted 15 plays with lots of motion and play action and dynamic lineups and wide receiver groupings and then going pure vanilla after that until it's the fourth quarter and it's and it's scramble time. Do you get a sense that there is what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't know if I want to use consequences, but you know, what are what are the repercussions for bad coaching? Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's also, you know, look at Pete I mean, fired Chris Rashad, you know, got rid of Daryl Bevel, got rid of Brian Schottenheimer. It's not like Pete just keeps people along forever. Um, you know, Dan Quinn moved on because he got a head coaching job. Gus Bradley got one as well. Like, both of those guys moved on to better positions. You know, everyone thought Chris Rashad was going to be the heir apparent at D coordinator, and it obviously was not working, and it was like, he's gone. Yeah. Um, you know, the first half of last year, you could have said Brian Schottenheimer was the assistant coach of the year in the NFL. It's a bad second half. It doesn't evolve. It stays the same. He's gone. So I don't believe that Pete lives in that fairy tale. everything is good land. He's also very committed to what he wants to do, and that's not going to change regardless of, you know, fourth offensive coordinator, because even, even before Daryl Bevel, he brought the guy from USC, what, Joe something or another, where he had for one year with Hasselbeck and – clipboard Jesus, and then he was gone. So, I mean, we're on Pete's fourth offensive coordinator here in a little over a decade. It's not like he doesn't make changes when he feels it's absolutely necessary. So there are consequences within it. The difference, though, is sometimes scripting plays and executing them and calling them are very, very different. And, you know, people get into habits regardless of whether they are, you know, as you a real estate agent, as me a financial advisor, as an offensive coordinator, as the lady making lunches at the public schools, we all get in our same habits and patterns of behavior. And coaches are no different than that. And that was one of the things where I talked about, like when you were scouting the defenses we were going against, I was constantly looking, hey, does this person do this consistently? Does Does this defensive lineman place his hand in one direction when he's trying to do a rip move to my outside and in a different position when he's going to try to swim me back to the inside. So it's all different things. And unfortunately, you're hamstrung with the, um, you know, without your best running back and your best quarterback. And we just continue to ram our head against the walls and wonder why the hell we have a headache. And I'm, I'm glad you said it. It's it's worth remembering that these are humans. You know, we get, we get this idea that in the NFL, you've got the best of the best and, and the brightest minds out there. And that is certainly close to true, I think. But it's still an insanely high pressure, highly magnified uh, 
series of decision making that they have to go through and uh, with a ton of moving parts and and I can see how it would be easy consciously or subconsciously to slip into some ruts and follow some patterns that you may not even be aware that you're doing in the moment. So I, I think that's good insight there. I do want to stay with the offense for a little bit here. Comparing, you know, zooming out from that game and looking at what we've seen from the Seahawks offense in the first seven games. And I really do, for the sake of this discussion, want to focus on the Russell Wilson games because I agree it's tough to be too harsh a critic when Geno's in there. What is different about the offense this year from the Schottenheimer and Bevel offenses that preceded it? A couple of things. Um, one, it feels like we're using more personnel groups, uh, a lot of 11, a lot of 12 personnel, and a lot of 13. Let me walk through to the listener what that is. 11 is one running back, one tight end. 12 is one running back, two tight ends. 13 is one running back, three tight ends. So we're seeing more personnel groups. Like you said, we are starting with more formations and running shifts and motions early in the game. And I don't know if those are going away just because, again, patterns of behavior or because when you do those things, you're adding an additional layer of complexity to an offense. For a quarterback to get up to the line of scrimmage and see the defense in one, you know, in one shell of a coverage or whatever they're doing, and then change the strength of your offense, motion somebody across, it completely changes what a defense is doing. And so you have to communicate maybe a different blocking scheme and a different uh, route combination because all of these routes are based off of what the coverage of the defense is doing. If it's a zone or versus a man, it could be the same receiver on the same play call and they have two very different things. Versus a zone, you might have the you know receiver go up five yards and just hook up. Versus man, he might have an in route and just keep running it, turn it into a drag. So you have very different things. So with Waldron's offense, we're seeing more complexity with it pre-snap than any of the other three offensive coordinators. Hands down, no doubt about it. It feels like we're using more personnel groups. And once we start to get healthy, if we start to get healthy, I think that's going to expand even more. But we're also starting to see the combination of man blocking schemes and zone blocking schemes. And what's actually something that made me a little happy is versus Pittsburgh, we saw some backside pulling of guard and tackles. We saw it on Travis Homer's, you know, nice run on this game as well. But stuff like that just makes the D line have to adjust their eyes and not fire off the ball as quickly as possible um, in an effort to slow them down. As an offensive lineman, the three things that we can always do um, to really help out offensive linemen is run more screens, run more draws, and pull guards, pull tackles to mess with defensive linemen. If you can do those things consistently, you're going to slow down defensive line groups. So I'm seeing those things from what Waldron's doing. And versus, you know, let's go back to Indianapolis, that first drive. I texted you when they hit that cover zero bomb to lock it immediately, and it was like, holy crap, that is phenomenal, how fast they adjusted on that play. Um, so we're seeing more big play offense from Waldron than we've seen in the past. But, you know, versus Minnesota, we regressed. Uh, the second half of, of the Titans, we regressed. And then we're living in the Geno era currently. All I picked out and everything that you just said is that you recommended Seattle runs more screens, and that just discredited you immediately. <laughs> <in my eyes. laughs> okay, so look at, this, look at the difference of screens. Awesome, I'm glad you brought that up. Look at the screens that the Saints ran versus what we ran. 
the one that we ran to Gerald Everett, he's five yards behind the line of scrimmage before he finally gets the ball. And we're trying to get Gabe Jackson at 300 what pounds out there to block the closing defender. There's very little chance we're going to get a big boy out there to pick off that guy. Now look at the screens that the Saints ran with Alvin Kamara, where he would literally hug tight to the tackle, look like he's going to block, flip his hips around, catch the ball, and then the tackle has already and guard are already downfield. So it's not the slow screens type of stuff. We have to run quick hitting stuff. We, with big offensive linemen as we have, you cannot run slow, methodical screen routes. It has to be much faster stuff. But thank you, Mike, for discrediting me. You're welcome. It's the least I can do. <laughs> well, on that note, that'll do it for today. No, just, uh, no I, I do want to. I do want to stick with this because um, I think you're right. I think there's some really noticeable changes schematically, philosophically. I can't help but feel like this is still Pete Carroll's offense. Do you consider this? As taking it as a whole, what we've seen so far, knowing that it will continue to evolve throughout the course of the year, to what degree do you consider this to be Shane Waldron's offense when we're watching it from home? I would say at least half of it's Shane Waldron's offense, but the balance of it does come back to Pete and his philosophy of balance and his belief in having offensive linemen fire off off the line of scrimmage to initiate contact with defensive linemen to wear them out so in the fourth quarter because Pete likes to play everything close that you've hopefully worn them down enough that you can crack some runs and hit some play action passes and win a 17 to 10 game or a 24 21 game as seems to have been our life the last you know 10 years 11 years here so that overall is still Pete that philosophy is Pete the way we go about doing it is definitely Shane Waldron though death taxes body blows. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so let's talk let's yeah. let's let's talk about that though because I I know that that's definitely a contentious point with uh, a lot of folks in the analytics crowd and I I certainly see a lot of value in an analytical approach to the game but as as someone who spent as much time in the trenches as you, do you believe that you can wear down a defense that way? I've seen it in person. Yes, I absolutely believe it. Now, again, College football versus NFL, totally different thing. But there are times when you can literally see the soul of a person leaving them where they know <laughs> they're fucked and they can't do anything and they're beat and they're, and they're hurt. We always talked about as offensive linemen, we were involved in 60-plus little car crashes every single game. Like, it would be Sunday, and I used to study in the uh, second floor of the library at PLU, Sundays, I studied on the first floor because my body hurt so bad, I didn't want to walk the 20 <laughs> steps to get to the second floor of the library. It is car crash after car crash after car crash after car crash. And then a whole bunch of ibuprofen and a couple of cold beers. So, yes, there that does make a difference where you can physically beat people up over a period of time. Now, again, we're talking about the NFL versus college. I will say this, though. If you look back at the older you know, offensive lines where it was like Hutch and Walter Jones, Robbie Tobek, Chris Gray, and Sean Locklear. It wasn't just those two on the left side. I mean, literally the two best football players, not named Russell Wilson, that I think I've ever watched in Seattle were, were Hutch and, and Walter Jones. But they physically dominated people to the point where you would see guys getting driven 10, 11, 12 yards off of the line of scrimmage. That matters. That makes a difference. This team, I don't think, can do that. As consistently, Dwayne Brown's older, 
Damian Lewis, not having him in this game, I think is a really underrated thing. He's a damn good player. Like, he is a really, really good guard. And the transition from right guard to left guard has been a challenge for him this year. You know, Jackson, think about it. When you wake up in the morning and you go, you know, you put your boxers or boxer briefs on, then you go to put your jeans in on, what leg do you put in first? Same one every time. Which one? Left. Okay. Do your right one tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> Brush your teeth. A shot. Brush your teeth, not with a sonic care or an automatic one, with the opposite hand. See how hard it is. Now try doing that with a 330-pound dude standing over you. This has been Jackson Cannot Complete Daily Household Tasks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yes, physically you can wear teams down. However, I will say this. I have always been a fan of dynamic offenses. I freaking love it when teams put you know 40 and 50 points up on a game. As an offensive lineman, I don't care if we run, we'd call them rip passes, but it's a running pass or a rollout pass. I didn't care if we hit a 60-yard bomb on that to score on the first play of a drive versus if we had a 10-play drive and we scored, you know, running it up the gut. I wanted to be in the end zone celebrating. That's the greatest place in the world to be where you're, like, there with 10 of your buddies, and you're like, hell yeah. They tried to stop us, and they couldn't do shit. Like, that is a fun place to be. And so I love the dynamic aspect that this team could be, but it's not showing it yet. It showed it early. What, you know, what was it through two games? What were their points per drive? What were their, what was their efficiency? It was unfrickin' real. They're not far from getting back to that if we get healthy. Okay, I want to flip to the other side of the ball. I want to take a look at the defense. The Seattle uh, defense has looked a lot better the last couple of weeks. To what degree, in your mind, Matt, is that an improvement in scheme and or performance? And to what degree is it a matter of just playing two pretty unimpressive passing attacks in a row? Well, one, let's celebrate the small victories in life that we've gone from the worst defense team in the history of the NFL to the second worst this year. Like, <laughs> yay, there's something positive. <laughs> um, okay, it's both, and it's not one, it's not the other. I think some of the changes from Trey Flowers no being, not being out there anymore um, to the combination of Jones and Brown has made a little bit of a difference. We're seeing corners starting to play a little bit tighter. DJ Reed had a really good game. That pass interference call on him was abject bullshit. Like, that was a great play yeah. that he made that extended yeah. a drive. And, again, it's the little things we're talking about, whether it's a Dwayne Brown holding call at the end of halftime versus the Rams that takes a touchdown off and then Myers misses the field goal. That game changes right there. It's those little things. So, a BS call right there for DJ Reed. He's playing better. Honestly, the last, few, uh, the last week, Jamal Adams looked better in coverage. And quite honestly, Jamal Adams backpedaling terrifies the hell out of me. Like, he is a great, strong safety coming forward, stopping the run, blitzing. Him in coverage scares me a little bit. The lack of pass rush this last game, especially not having Daryl Taylor, was a big thing. So, yes, we're improving. They are getting better. Their, their coverage looks tighter when I went back and rewatched it. Um, they're stopping the run at a more effective rate. I don't think they could be any worse after Derrick Henry. Um, but they, you know, they are, let's not kid ourselves, facing Ben Roethlisberger, who's 49, Cooked. 52. Um, Cooked. You know, pushing 290 now. And, <laughs> J and Jameis Winston, who, honestly, God love him, his best days were at Florida State. <laughs> right. And, and no receivers, right? I mean, yeah. 
Kamara had, I think, 60% of their total yards in that because other than that, it was like Jawan Johnson and Marcus Callaway and Traquan Smith who <laughs> couldn't do anything uh, right Except during that game. Yelled at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the thing. You know, I, I actually think I like Kirk Cousins and Ryan Tannehill as quarterbacks more than a lot of people do, but they're not top five, top eight guys, probably not top 10 guys in the NFL. And, and they sliced up. Seattle pretty good in those two games Stafford whatever combination of Stafford and McVay with with Cup and Woods and Higby and Henderson that's that's whatever that you're you're going to get crushed by those guys nine times out of ten but it when when Tannehill and Cousins are able to pick you apart that way that that to me is the really disconcerting part the the idea that we need to play against poor passing offenses in order to have a chance but the fact that they only gave up 13 points is remarkable. I don't care who's on the other side. I totally agree. And and actually, let's look at both. You know, quickly, let's look at both Cousins and Tannehill with those teams. What did they, what did they both have going? They both had the run game going with the pass game. It wasn't one or the other. Yeah. And that's that balance that's always being talked about. You know, again, Derrick Henry is a dude among dudes. Like that's a that's ridiculous. What Derrick Henry is as a human being, like. Holy crap, that's amazing. But they had that run game and the pass game going. And when you do that, and Seattle wasn't able to slow down the run, you have to commit more people to the line of scrimmage. Your coverage has to get looser or else you're going to give up big plays. Um, And it really makes your defensive coordinator have to throw out a lot of the playbook. So, yes, they're getting better. And, And quite honestly, Jackson, what I'll say is we won't find out this game versus Trevor Lawrence but the following weeks when we got Kyler Murray and Aaron Rodgers back to back, we're going to find out. Like if they can if they can hold those teams into the 20s, then yeah, this team is better. If those teams are rolling 40s, we're we're not. So the Seahawks Legion of Boom defense uh, spearheaded a league-wide shift towards more single high schemes for years. Now this season defenses are lining up in two high shells more than ever, largely stemming from the success that Brandon Staley and the Rams had in 2020 and the camouflage that those pre-snap looks can provide. Uh, Matt, do you think that Seattle's defensive coaching has fallen short in their creativity before the ball is snapped? And if you were in charge, which you may soon be, who knows? uh, (laughs) What tweaks would you prioritize? One, I thought about getting into coaching. If you're ever going to do that at that level, don't have a wife, don't have a kids. You're going to live in 15 different towns in 23 years. And until you get at a big level, you're not making more than 80 to 100,000 a year. So, you know, God love the coaches. Ain't no way in hell I'm ever pursuing that or would have pursued that. I will say pre-snap, we're not doing a lot of disguises. Mike, you're absolutely right. They're not doing a, a ton of, you know, where it looks too high, rolling to three, or even going from too high to cover one robber. Um, we saw that in the Super Bowl. Was it Demarius Thomas, that first drag route when Cam lit him up? And literally, you know, we talk about taking a soul out of a person. Mm-hmm. Dude, that dude wasn't the same. Like, that game changed on, what, play four of the Super Bowl or whatever? I mean, his soul literally left his body. Because Cam took it out. Didn't Demarius Thomas set the record for most receptions ever in a Super Bowl, and it didn't matter because he got just absolutely stamped on the first play of the game. It was like thirteen catches for it was thirteen catches for like eighty yards, and he had a bunch of drops too. Like yeah. it was it's such a weird game. And and if you looked at that, okay, so talking about creativity with that Dan Quinn at the time, 
Seattle comes out in a in a cover two shell, so they look like they you know they got the best free safety that we've ever seen in our life, you know, po- quite possibly in Earl Thomas, and maybe one of the best strong safeties in Cam. They had that cover two shell. Denver runs three receivers to the left side, so you know a drag right a drag route is not going to the left; it's only coming to the right. Seattle flips their safeties, switches them over, so Cam is away from that three receiver formation. And as soon as it breaks, Earl takes the middle of the field and Cam comes screaming up because he knows that the drag route is probably going to be thrown by Manning right over where the right tackle is, somewhere in that area. And and that changes it. We're not doing a lot of those things. But what I will say to give Ken Norton some credit is if we go back to the Pittsburgh game, they actually did something that I had never seen previous teams do. So a nickel defense, five defensive backs, dime defense, six defensive backs. They actually ran a quarter defense where they had seven defensive backs on the play where you see Jamal Adams blitzing um, from the right-hand side and they stacked three defensive linemen on the left side. It was literally a, you know, three defensive linemen, Bobby Wagner and seven DBs in man and two cover two man, essentially. Um, That type of stuff that we're starting to see a little bit more of mixing in cover two, running cover one, um, we're seeing a little bit more post-snap variety. We're not seeing much camouflage pre-snap. So it's safe to say you do a bit more of that if if you were if you were in charge. You'd be switching up your personnel a little bit more frequently, moving guys around before the snap, and and uh, making it a little bit tougher for the offense to diagnose what you're trying to do. You have to do that if you can create confusion. Whether it is adjusting your defensive linemen over, um, you know, shifting them over whether it is you know, appearing to be in bump and run and then bailing out as a corner, whether it be having, you know, if you're going to run a cover two, having two safeties look like they're in cover one and then bail out, all of that type of disguise helps tremendously. Now you have to have the athletes to get back into position. That's the part that's always neglected. You know, you could have Earl way out of position pre-snap and his ass is getting into position before the play begins because he's a freak of nature you could have Richard Sherman you know eight yards off and then pre-snap come up and start to bump the guy right as the ball is snapped and then turn and run with him because he was able to diagnose plays faster than maybe any cornerback that I've ever seen so you had very very special athletes that could do that as we're sitting here now we don't have that type of talent but we need to figure out how over time over especially Maybe not necessarily this week having to disguise as much, but come Arizona after the bye and Green Bay, we better disguise this stuff because, you know, Rodgers will cut your ass up. Murray's, that offense is humming right now. Yeah, no question about that. Matt, I want to do a little vibe check here. You very clearly watched the game through a different lens than most of us, and you've seen just about every snap since Carroll arrived. What stands out to you about where the franchise is as a whole? And I'm talking from the VMAC on down. And what got them to where they are now? One, if you're a Seahawks fan and you haven't been loving the last decade, and truly, like, we have been blessed as Hawks fans over the last decade. Like, only the New England Patriots have been in the same category as us. Like, this is truly a remarkable franchise. What Paul Allen put into place, bringing in Pete Carroll, him hand-selecting John Schneider, running the drafts, you know, the way they hit, you know, what, 13, 14, 15, whatever those, I mean, they absolutely crushed it. 
we're closer to the end of this dynasty than we are at the beginning, and that's hard because we've missed specifically really bad on the last three drafts. And when you miss on drafts, you have a franchise quarterback who is paid, what, what's he, top five paid still? I um, think so. To this point, um, in a league that demands parity via a hard salary cap, they don't have margin for error. Again, we talk about margin for error on the, on the field. We don't have margin for error with missing on draft picks, with missing on Malik McDowell's, with missing on LJ Collars. We don't have that ability. And unfortunately, we have. And it feels a little bit like, you know, not a duct tape job as my dad used to do when he was working on house projects, but it feels like, you know, we're not as solid as we have been in the past. And that's a natural evolution that happens to all dynasties, whether it's, you know, the Yankees in the 90s with Joe Torre, whether it's, you know, the, the New England Patriots, whether it's the Seahawks now, they all come to an end. But you miss on draft picks. You pay quarterbacks a lot. It leaves holes. When you have holes, you get exposed with young, inexperienced players. And then, you know, even this year, the loss of Jaron Reed has been really big. That has not been talked about enough where losing him has forced Seattle to run two larger defensive tackles in there that aren't as good as pass rushers. Jaron Reed, a couple of years ago, what do you have, like nine sacks? Yeah, I mean, he was a menace. And and I will tell you, as a center, when you're you're fighting in a phone booth, so, so as a center, when you're pass blocking, you're fighting in a phone booth. It's a small, compressed space. As a tackle, because I, I played guard, center, and tackle at PLU, when I was at a tackle, you know, the defensive linemen have so much space to work. Jaron Reed's ability to win a fight in a small space and push the center or guard back into the quarterback's front hip was such an incredible gift for the rest of the defense, and we don't have that right now. And that that just one loss of player, I think on this defense, has made a big difference. Now, overall, we could have had a replacement in him with Malik McDowell had he panned out, but he didn't. We could have had somebody up in there like an LJ Collier who slips inside sometimes to rush last year, and we missed on him as well. So it's these little misses over and over and over, a whole bunch of them, and here we are. Is this the part where we sadly, longingly reminisce about Sheldon Richardson? <laughs> <laughs> what a frustrating year that was to have him. Like, like honestly, when he came in, and uh, I mean, what did we give up? We gave up a ton to get him. I mean, we just seemed to give up a ton in all of our drafts or in all of our trades. Um, but we bring in Sheldon. And he was okay. He was okay. He was good. But then, you know, he was better, you know, pre with the Jets. He's been better post. Um, yeah, it's just this franchise, unfortunately, you have to hit on drafts. You just absolutely have to hit on drafts, and we haven't. Yeah, you know, and, and to your point about what they're missing up the middle, we, we give so many flowers to the edge rushers. They're the guys that get paid. They're the guys that typically have the higher sack totals uh, that are more visible when you're just watching a game on TV. But I've always felt that pressure generated up the middle is so much more disruptive to a quarterback and to an offense than pressure coming off of the edge. you feel that's accurate? Absolutely. So, so even go back to the Monday night game when Brian Greasy was talking about Geno slipping out the backside and where he needed to step up into the pocket. When you have that front pressure, there's nowhere to go but back. And when you go back, 
your tackles are screwed because they're expecting you on a three-step drop, five-step, or seven-step to set up there and then work your way forward. When you as a quarterback start going backwards, that tackle has no ability to block, and that D end has that edge all day long. So, yes, pressure up the front is a play is a pass killer like nobody's business. And not having that is really hurting this defense. Um, because, you know, Brian Monet, Al Woods, um, you know, Puna Ford, they're really good at stopping the, stopping the run. But they're not getting the pressure. They're not getting three yards deep into the backfield, four yards deep in the backfield on pass plays. Yeah, you know, you were saying that the one thing you'd change on defense, if you could, is disguising some more stuff pre-snap. I think if I were to add one thing to that that I would like to see is a little bit more creativity with the pass rush. I feel like we don't see Seattle running a lot of stunts and twists. Um, when they bring Jamal Adams up, it's always just off the right edge of the defensive line. It's just setting up for a straight speed rush, which he's excellent at. Um, but, you know, they ran one delayed blitz with Bobby Wagner that I saw on Monday, and it ended up in a sack, or would have been if, if Blair hadn't hit Jameis high. To me, plays like that are like the DK touchdown at the beginning, where it's like, yes, it's not going to happen every time that you do it, but there is a ceiling to those types of plays that you don't get when it's just line up and be tougher than your opponent. Yeah, well, and, and when you don't have the pass rush, you know, it's one thing if we're talking about Chris Clemens, Michael Bennett, you know, and Cliff Averill, then rush with four and you're good. Like, you're really good. And that was, you know, maybe part of the issue with, the, you know, how good the LOB was that was overlooked by the fans was how much pressure we got with four guys up the, you know, up front. Those guys were dudes, and they got after the, the pass really well. Um, I agree with you. Because we don't have the dudes to rush the passer, um, because, you know, it, it looks like Carlos Dunlap is not the same Carlos Dunlap we had the second half of last year. Um, Daryl Taylor is going to be very good. Like he's I already, think so. He's, he's already good. He's going to be really good if he can stay healthy. That guy's um, got some Frank Clark to him. He does. He, that's a really – Jackson, I hadn't thought about that, but he does. He has that bend around the corner that everybody talks about and his sheer get-off speed. If you stop the plays, he, his you know, outside foot or his takeoff foot is already planted at, with his first step before some of the other D linemen have even moved. Like That's a, that's a God-given ability because there's three types of speed. There's initiation speed, reaction speed, and decision speed. As an offensive lineman, as an offensive player, you need to have really good initiation speed um, and decision speed. As a D lineman, you have to have really good reaction speed and decision speed. So they're two different skill sets. Uh, Taylor is going to be very, very good at that. Um, but I, I agree. Like some more creativity of disguising blitzes coming in and out of it. You know, even stuff like what we saw on that very last play from the Saints where Gino loses 11 yards. Um, and then Myers misses the field goal at midway through the, the fourth quarter. They came with a cover zero blitz. So from the left side, they had three guys blitzing to the left of Kyle Fuller and four to the right. We kept Travis Homeward in the block. We had six guys to block seven. They were basically saying, F you, we're get, one of these guys or multiple are going to get to Geno before you can get the ball out of your hands. And Seattle doesn't do that. Again, going back to what percentage is, is Ken Norton versus Pete Carroll. P. 
Pete Carroll is not a cover zero guy. He's not a, we're going to, you know, put, bur- you know, burn the ships. Let's go. That's not Pete Carroll. He plays it close to the vest. I would like to see more of that. I know you want to see more of that. Um, you know, but different philosophies get you wins in different ways. All right. So before we get out of here, I want to ask you one more question. I'm, I'm going to let you get hypothetical here. You're Jody Allen. You have been. I'm rich. As far as we can tell, pretty hands off with this organization since your brother died. We, your, your franchise is nearing a precipice or so it appears. Let's just say for the sake of this hypothetical, Russell Wilson comes back. They win enough games to go eight and nine, maybe have a chance going into week 18 where if they win and two or three other teams lose, they can sneak in. That doesn't happen. They're right on, right on the edge. They're eight and nine or nine and eight. How are you approaching, and 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 you you know it's time to step in and start making some decisions. How are you approaching that decision making process as it relates to Pete Carroll, who doesn't have a boss besides you? How it relates to John Schneider? How it relates to Russell Wilson and on down the line? So first off, is Jody Schneider, or I'm sorry, uh, Jody Allen, looking to offload this team in any way, shape, or form? Or from what it sounded like with the trust that Paul left, this is the kind of the one thing she really wanted to keep and to be hands on. If she's wanting to be hands-on and you're having to make changes and she believes it's time to make changes, it's hard to go away from one of the five best quarterbacks in the game of football for a 70-year-old coach and a GM that's been here for a decade. John Schneider's very good at his job. Pete Carroll is very good at his job. Russell Wilson is still one of the best at his jobs and finding you know, what are you going to do? Blow it up completely, change coach and change quarterback. Cause if you're going to do a wholesale, you know, Houston Astros of 2014 and literally tear it down to the studs then tear it down to the studs, but don't go half ass with it. Does Russ want Pete here? Does he not? Does Russ want to be here or does he not? Those are very detailed conversations that she needs to have. And maybe it, you know, is, Russ decides to be like Tom Brady and be like, you know what? Appreciate it, but I'm out. I'm doing my own thing. Um, sometimes some things can't be mended, and it's just best for all parties to go. But if I'm having to choose, I'm sticking with Russ and making adjustments going forward. Now, if you do that, who the hell are you bringing in as a coach? What does that look like? Is it going to be somebody that was had you know in and out burgers one time with Sean McVay and you know, gets a head coaching job in the NFL because there's been a whole lot of those. Um, but how you go about doing that, you know, that's that's a crazy amount of decision going into it. But Russ is, I, I think you have to stick with Russ if he wants to stay. Yeah, I, I got to agree. I think, I think that's the first conversation that you have, and you go from there. If, if Russ is saying, you know what, I'm we all know he's obsessed with his legacy and that's fine. I actually want my franchise quarterback obsessed with his own legacy because you reach a certain point and it's not about stats or accolades anymore. It is about winning Super Bowls, and that's all I want my quarterback thinking of. Um, he also seems very, very invested in a number of organizations locally. So, you know, if he's saying I want my preference is to win more Super Bowls here in Seattle, then I, as Jody Allen, am saying, what do you want? How do you see that happening? And not saying that 
you give the quarterback carte blanche over the organization. But I think that has to be a driving force in your decision making. And if he says, you know, I saw what Brady did. I just put in my time here. I've enjoyed it, but I need to get to the next chapter. Then I think you check down and say, okay, is Pete Carroll the type of coach that we want to rebuild this thing through? And and I think that that's actually where where Pete Carroll's value really would shine is the ability, like we saw, how he treated those less talented 2010-2011 teams and, and really got them playing at their ceiling. I think he could speed up a turnaround um, if they needed to go that route. But um, they, they, I, I agree that it starts with, with Russ with that conversation. Uh, Matt, you know that I could do this with you for the rest of the evening, but I do want to uh, definitely let you know how appreciative we both are of your time and, and your wisdom today. Next week, the Seahawks face the Jaguars in what is hopefully their last game without Wilson this year. Like we said, the season is kind of wobbling on the cliff's edge already. So a win, which I think we're all assuming... If that still happens, it's going to be necessary to have anything meaningful to play for after the bye week, which is a crazy thing to say eight weeks into the season, but I, I think it's true. And if they lose, well, uh, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> How fitting would it be to succumb to the darkness against a team that employs both Daryl Bevel and Brian Schottenheimer? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Yeah, that that would be it. That would be it. If, if Urban Meyer's the one that puts Pete Carroll in the dirt. And then cucks him and takes the job at USC. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your king? <laughs> Is Urban hanging around town after the game? Um, hitting up belt on billiards or something. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. I can see it. All right, guys. Well, as always, I want to thank everyone listening for supporting this show, whether that's here on Twitter, Facebook, especially with the reviews y'all have left. That's extremely helpful to us. Um, and of course, reading the column every week. And I really want to thank Matt Nichols for joining us. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. Remember, that's J A C S O N. No K is OK. Mike is at Mike Barwin, and the show is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seattle Cigar Thoughts. And, of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. Uh, we are also doing an uh, audio read of each article uh, the night out when it publishes. So the following morning, you'll have that. So if you don't have time to flip open your laptop and read the article, you can listen to it on the go while you're working out, working, whatever it is that uh, that you need to do. We're also doing pregame Twitter lives uh, about 30 minutes before kickoff each week. I'm going to be on there answering your questions, telling you the things that I'm going to be looking for in the game coming up. And if you like the show and you want more of amazing guests like Matt, uh, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your preference. We're really proud of what we're doing here, and we're building momentum for the future. So your guys' feedback is huge on that as we continue to grow. Matt, again, thank you so much. Next week, really, really excited. We've got one of my favorite members of Seattle Media, Dick Fain of KJR. He's going to come join us and tell us what he saw in the Jaguars game, what he anticipates coming after the bye, and his observations as someone that has covered this team closely for many, many years. Until then, onwards and upwards, my friends.